Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Podcast listeners, Al Martin here. Welcome back. We always appreciate you listening. Today, I have as a guest, Alex Watson. The topic in the category we're going to discuss today is synthetic data, security, AI, startup leadership, everything in between, go wherever we need to go. He is, what are you, you the CEO of Gretel? Is that right? I'm the co-founder and chief product officer. CPO, uh, like it. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on uh, Making Data Simple. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So let me say a little bit and then I'll let you introduce yourself. Uh, Gretel's a privacy startup that enables developers, researchers, and scientists to quickly create safe versions of data for use in pre-production environments and machine learning workloads, which then are shareable across teams and, and organizations. These are tools that address the data privacy bottleneck and this bottleneck that typically stifles innovation across multiple industries, for example. It allows you to equip builders everywhere with the ability to create quality data sets that ultimately scale. In short, I would say synthetic data levels the playing field for everyone. That's the motto, I think, here. With that, how did I do, Alex? Did I do all right? I think that's a fantastic introduction. <laughs> and I know that, uh, if you'll allow me to say, recently closed your Series A funding uh, by Greylot, and I know you've got other investors with the GitHub investors, et cetera. So I think you're starting off pretty hot. If you wouldn't mind, go ahead and talk to me about a little bit of your experience, what led you to Gretel and kind of where your mindset is in terms of the business plan that you currently have at Gretel. Well, I love it. I'm happy to start with a quick background here. I'm actually, this is my third startup, which I never thought that I would be that uh, person that they came to three different startups, but really, uh, you know, just thrilled with the opportunity and, and some of the problems we're solving with Gretel and would love to dive in on it today and hoping to uh, to really knock it out of the park this time. So very excited. Talking on uh, just really fast, you know, kind of background. Actually started my career out of college, computer science, started my career at the NSA. Had an incredible experience there. I came there right after September 11th. So I started in, in 2002 and got to work on problems that I think really kind of even influence how I look at things today, where we were working on, you know, huge big data problems. And also got, you know, you know, kind of leading to what I worked on after I left the NSA, you know, kind of experienced kind of firsthand some of the um, the challenges that businesses are up against when it comes to protecting their data and their infrastructure and their intellectual property from a really determined and capable attacker. And really, when I left NSA and got an opportunity to, to found my first company, uh, which was a startup in the, uh, in the cybersecurity space called Harvest AI. It was around how can we use machine learning and how we can use the best of breed technologies out there to find those risks that, that would come after your business in a way that didn't impact normal operations and enabled people to share data. What happened to Harvest AI? Um, we had an incredible run, actually. So we did a, uh, a, a series seed uh, we built for about two years, and our focus was on helping companies protect their SaaS environments. So we were one of the first companies out there with a protection solution for uh, Google Suite, Office 365, Salesforce, those places where companies wanted to start using SaaS technologies, but they didn't have protection or visibility to what was happening. So we had a, a combination of natural language processing to identify important information. And then we had behavioral analytics that would look at how that sensitive data was being accessed and really only step in when something scary happened. As I said, we built for about two years. We were going out for our Series A, and we got approached by AWS around acquisition. 
What an incredible opportunity. I, I think at the time, AWS had been interested in offering security services to their customers to help them protect mm-hmm. their AWS environment for a couple years. And they saw a really nice fit with the technology we were building and, and their kind of philosophy and approach. So we got to come in. I was a uh, general manager for four years there for uh, AWS Macy, which is a service that customers use to identify and protect important information in the cloud using NLP. You know, I think a lot of the lessons that I learned there, both, you know, kind of seeing that incredible access to data that we had building a service inside the walls at AWS and how that can influence product decisions and make you so smart, really, in, in understanding your customers. And then also seeing those challenges that many of our customers had, um, enabling that same level of access to data inside of their business and how limiting that can be. So what time frame was this, uh, the Harvest AI piece? And then when did, it, when did it start? When did it end? Yeah, so we started building Harvest AI in 2013. Yeah. Um, we were acquired by AWS in early 2016. I stayed there as a, as a GM through, uh, through 2019. Got AWS uh, Macy launched grew it into actually one of the top services that we have at, at AWS, you know, through a series of, you know, I think fantastic conversations and relationships that we had with customers where they would talk to us about some of the challenges they had building with data or enabling data access or understanding where that is, you know, both built a great service and then influenced a lot of the, of the, uh, the thinking for, for building Gretel today. Say a little bit more about Harvest AI though. Uh, when you talk about protecting SaaS environment using NLP, these security services, how does that play out? Give us a, you know, keep it simple, yet you make it meaningful in terms of what kind of protection we're talking here. Sure. The theory that we had with Harvest AI was that when modern attacks are coming in, that the existing mechanisms that you would use to detect risks on your data wouldn't be sufficient. I think it's pretty well understood that um, account compromise can happen, password compromise can happen. And what that result in is, you know, uh, I think that classic example of, you know, a person who normally logs in from Baltimore, you know, attempting to log in from some foreign country across the world at the same time. From my experience at, uh, at NSA and also what I was kind of seeing happening in the, uh, in the ecosystem, you know, I knew that that wasn't sufficient. Like a really determined attacker that's coming in would look just like the types of, uh, you know, they'd be using a, a compromised account. Perhaps they got it through spear phishing, but it would look just like that user coming in. You'd be logging in from the same location. Really fundamentally what happens and what many security practitioners look for is a change in the type of data you're accessing. Classic example would be someone who typically deals with finance paperwork and things like that, all of a sudden looking into system uptime schedules and data center migration plans and things like that. So our idea here was saying, can we replicate that same process that we know the best security researchers or best security operations uh, specialists do, where you start looking at this account might be compromised. What indications do we have that they're accessing types of data that are risky to our business? And can we automate that with machine learning? So let me see if I can restate that back to you. Essentially, you're saying, look, we're looking for anomalies. They, they're accessing one type of data and all of a sudden they start looking at credit card info. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. You say, hey, there's something wrong. But how does NLP come to play into that? The NLP component, it's really kind of the the most important kind of leg in this entire understanding. And it's really understanding like what is important data to the business versus what is just a public um, slick sheet that's shared for your product. And so often that responsibility falls to the security practitioner to dive in and try to understand that themselves. So our question was, can we use NLP to find out what's unique about a business 
And really, you know, their goal here is empowerment. It's allowing businesses to use Google Suite, Office 365, like these really cool capabilities, help their employees collaborate better and really only step in when you see risky access to important data. So in this case, NLP, we were able to use that to help identify unique or important data, as you mentioned earlier, credit card information, PII, things like that across your mm -hmm. business. Nice, nice. So um, then you go to Amazon, you stay there till 2019. And then I had an opportunity to found Gretel with a, a few of my, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say most respected colleagues that I've worked with and also extremely close friends. And so go you after stole them. everybody from Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I, yeah, I waited uh, 18 months. Um, <laughs> well, you gave us some time. That's fine. That's good. It's all good now. I mean, really kind of a tackle a, a problem that we saw kind of emerging in, in the market um, and the one that also hits us really personally, you know, at home every day. And what that problem is centered around is the, is the types of, of data that are out there. As you know, we all have smart devices in our homes. Uh, we all value, you know, our Nest cameras and our, you know, ring doorbells and things like that. But the truth is that these services around us are collecting more and more sensitive information every day. Those benefit our lives. It's really important to us as consumers, you know, to me as a parent with children, you know, that that types of information that gets collected is used in a way that maintains our privacy um, and really kind of looks out for our, our best interest as a consumer. What we saw was that, that you know, many of these companies, um, these tools don't exist. How do I do privacy engineering? How do I ensure that I can enable data access in my business? That gets blocked a lot of times based on the, the sensitivity of the data that you really kind of limits that you collect as a company. It limits it to a, a small group of people that have been certified to work with that. And the question is, is there ways that you can enable innovation? Can you enable more people within a business to test ideas and build better products while maintaining the privacy um, of, the, of the data that that's collected on? And if that's possible, you know, what can we unlock? And that's really the, the thesis for Gretel. We're starting out with a set of tools. We use uh, something um, called synthetic data, where we're building really incredible machine learning driven synthetic data platform that can create an artificial version of any data set um, of any structure. It can be a database, it can be a CSV file, or, you know, for data scientists, they love working with Pandas data frames. Can we build an artificial version of that that has the same insights and the same distributions as the original data? without using real customer names, real customer addresses, or data that could be tied back to that customer. So I got several questions. Well, let's just start at the top. In terms of privacy engineering, you say, look, there's not enough companies out there. Obviously, given the, the amounts of ra ransomware we're seeing, there's not enough companies out there. <laughs> How can that be the case at the same time with all the stuff that's going on in the industry right now, the break-ins, the ransomware, the stuff from Russia, all this stuff? Mm -hmm. How can we not have enough focus? Is it a knowledge thing? What, what's the problem? I think that some of the challenges that you know we've seen in this space, I would separate um, security and privacy in, in this context and say a couple things. One with the, the ransomware challenges that you see today, here you see you know a really kind of determined group of attackers that are exposing a vulnerability that exists where many businesses don't have the policies and the frameworks and the kind of security mechanisms in place to protect their data. Um, and they only need to find one vulnerability, right? And that one vulnerability they can expand upon, you know, look at the healthcare systems, for example, right? Like where hospitals a lot of times run appliances that are 
incredibly expensive, an MRI machine that might have a version of, you know, Windows 95 running on it. And for them to upgrade that operating system, they would have to buy a whole new MRI machine, which just isn't cost effective. Where we see ransomware challenges in, for example, the healthcare world, um, it's around exploiting those vulnerabilities that attackers know exist and then expanding from there. With some basic um, security mechanisms and improvements, I think there's a lot of room to protect against ransomware. And we're starting to see, you know, the whole kind of world kind of investing in how do we build that basic, you know, protection mechanisms, backup mechanisms, things like that, that really um, will help protect against ransomware. But that's a case where the whole industry needs to evolve really quickly. Data privacy um, as a separate component here, you know, the second part of the discussion being that like super sensitive data you have inside your business, which often gets replicated and gets breached. Like, why aren't there better mechanisms for protecting privacy? That's a really complicated question. An answer I've seen talking to customers uh, that we work with is that the pace of innovation around software is so fast. We use new tools and new technologies all the time to solve problems. As a business, many of the customers we talk to believe in developer empowerment, and they want to tell developers, use the best tool you can to solve this problem, um, which leads to innovation. It leads to happy developers. It leads to really great services for your customers. It can also be hard to build protections around it. And historically, I think a lot of um, data privacy tools have been all or nothing in, this, in, the, in the idea of like, give us all your data and we'll protect it and we'll give you a couple mechanisms you can use to access it. What we hear from developers is that that boxes them in to a certain solution with a certain set of capabilities that doesn't allow them to innovate. So when we started building Gretel, one of the first you know things that we had is how do we build privacy engineering and make this possible for a developer without being prescriptive about what tools they use? So we integrate directly as APIs. We integrate directly with SDKs, really meeting our developers where they're developing using the types of tools and databases or warehouses and technologies they want, um, I think is one of the things that we're doing um, pretty uniquely that is enabling us to develop and, and to deploy within large businesses really quickly. Look, I think you're wise to separate security from privacy because they're different to your point. Quickly back to security real quick. Sure. Does the tech exist today? Do you believe? I mean, is it complete? Is it comprehensive to, to avoid some of these ransomware issues or is it, kind of the legacy system situation. The MRI is a great example. I mean, I can't, we just can't afford to, to redo this system. And so we go with legacy knowing that there's risk out there. And, it, and is that where most of the attacks are happening? The technology exists today to protect against ransomware attacks. What I often kind of encourage um, the different customers that we talk to or people asking these questions is to say, you know, use the best of breed technologies out there for SaaS applications, for example, the, the Google suites of the world, the Office 365s that exist out there, Dropbox, Salesforce, things like that. When you pair that with really strong authentication technology, um, whether you're using a, an Okta or using a, a Duo or using any form of two-factor, so essentially two-factor authentication, which verifies your password and your login with something that you own, whether it is a authenticator app or it's a YubiKey two-factor device, or even just a text message to your phone. Mm -hmm. These types of things give you a really good start at protecting your um, account, which is what ends up being compromised, which leads to the ransomware problems. A second uh, thing that I would say along the same lines is developing, and, and this takes um, a lot of effort for, for companies to do, 
Um, but when you kind of start building applications in a really modern way in the cloud, you get some really great protection mechanisms, such like, for example, automated backups and things like that, that you can do that would protect even in the event you are compromised, you can create a, you know, a one-way transfer backup um, to, you know, a daily backup. And at worst case, you as a hospital are losing a day worth of patient records. You're not losing years worth of patient records. I think, you know, that's interesting. You mentioned the one-way transfer backup. I'm, I'm a data guy. I mean, this is making data simple, even though we go everywhere. We're in security today. <laughs> but uh, I think there's so many backups. I was, I, was, I was, somebody was telling me the other day, we were looking at some statistics and I'm going to get this wrong. So anybody listening, please do not take, but it was something like, if you get hacked, the average backup you have to go back to, in other words, before you notice, it's like something like 65 days or something. Yeah. It's like you lose almost a quarter's worth of wow. uh, of work, well, yeah. at least two months anyway. It was somewhere, I want to say it was 65. So you you mentioning the one-way transfer is an important aspect that most don't consider. That's that's pretty huge. Yeah. The one-way transfer, you know, prevents someone from going in and compromising your backups, which is, you know, one of the, as ransomware techniques become more targeted, a really common technique that you see is that the attackers compromise your infrastructure and then they compromise your backups. So uh, to your point, that compromise may happen for a while before you detect it. Um, so one of the, you know, kind of useful techniques is validating that data that's going into your backups. Like, does it still match the schema? Does it still match the, like the, the shape that you're expecting it to do? Or is it possible, like you just mentioned, that you're backing up a database that's already been compromised? So I think there are a couple important stages there. But the one-way backup and really kind of preventing the possibility of that database being corrupted um, is a really important step for protection. And then the second one, too, is making sure that things that you are backing up are the information you're expecting. Yeah, good advice. All right, so now I transition back to privacy. I can see your point in terms of, well, let me kind of kind of state, and I'd like you to expand on this. As we're moving as fast as we are moving, uh, I mean, businesses the, that are trying to you know, transform and, and get to where they need to be and, and beat the competition, you got to be moving fast. That means you're democratizing data as fast as possible mm -hmm. as well. You're going to have gaps in governance that you need to continually bridge. Meanwhile, you, to your point, you got the developer that's saying, hey, just leave me alone. Don't put all these processes in place if you want me to innovate at the pace that you want me to. Is that, you think, what's causing some of the internal privacy? I mean, is that number one on the list or not so much? I think that that is right up there. I would probably categorize it as two challenges that businesses have for enabling data access. One is technology, right? Do you have technology that makes it safe for you to share that really sensitive data you're collecting? Number two, and equally important, if not more important, is the cultural challenge, right? Do you trust people outside your immediate sphere? And how do you build that level of trust? We use, uh, I, I think, a kind of an interesting parallel uh, that we think about quite a bit, actually, is, is what GitHub was able to do over the past 10 years with the introduction of the pull request. So, you know, rewind 10 years ago and ask the same question about software, where it was at times unfathomable to think that you would bring in software that was developed open source by some person you didn't know and use it um, or build upon that. But what GitHub did is they made that a social experiment. They got over that cultural challenge of building with, with software where you didn't write all the software yourself by introducing a, a trust and a social component with, uh, with GitHub. So you see people's face as developers. You can see what they've contributed to in the past. You can see the quality of their code. Mm -hmm. Also, you can enable 
collaboration through this idea of, of a pull request where you can make a change, you can suggest that change, people can review it and incorporate it. Um, some of those same challenges exist with data where you may not know the persons that are going to access this data or how they're going to use it. So the question is, from a technology perspective, how do you make it safe so you're protecting the identities of the customers or the, the sensitive data that this is based upon? And then how do you build that level of trust across your business that enables you to share that with other people in your business? And over time, if we have provable guarantees around privacy, why not open source you know, that artificial you know, de-identified um, data in a way that other businesses can leverage it and use it? Yeah, great information, man. I uh, I have to tell you at IBM, I think here we agree with you on almost all your sentiment. We're really pushing open for all the reasons you mentioned earlier in terms of, I actually believe that, uh, you know, sticking to one like governance strategy or whatever uh, can actually make you more vulnerable than being open. That's why we, we drive hybrid solutions mm -hmm. across hybrid cloud, et cetera. Going back to Gretel, what does Gretel stand for? What What's the meaning of Gretel? Uh, it's a play off of Hansel and Gretel um, and the, the breadcrumbs we leave behind. And we're kind of likening it to, you know, leaving our lives. The more and more the data that gets collected about us, we leave these kind of digital breadcrumbs that identify us and the path that we're on. You know, while we're building tools for developers and for companies to enable safe data access, the goal here is to protect the, the privacy of the individual consumers that this data is based on. And that's really that Gretel is a nod to that. Nice. What you just described to me, data breadcrumbs is like blockchain. <laughs> you don't use any blockchain, do you? Uh, we don't. Um, at the, at, and I think blockchain is a fascinating technology that has a, just a, a million interesting applications for it. Um, the underlying technology we use here um, is a, uh, as a neural network. So deep uh, neural network, very similar if, if you've seen the work that OpenAI is doing around what they call it GPT, but these are language models that can write tweets or they can write articles very similar to, I think that's, you know, some of the popular use cases. Um, it's using machine learning to train on a few samples and then write, uh, for example, uh, a, a article um, that is completely artificially generated. Right. Our approach is very similar, but we do it for the types of data, um, structured data that you might have inside a database or a data warehouse. You started this company from square one or did you get pulled in to be the uh, CPO or how did that work? Um, I started the company, um, so myself and my uh, co-founder, John Myers, um, CTO, um, he had a company, um, security company as well, that was acquired by uh, NetScout, um, Arbor Networks. He was building massive de-identification systems that allowed them to, uh, to learn from their data as well and realized he was spending just as much time building the privacy framework as the actual application itself. <laughs> so um, we left two years ago. We, uh, we prototyped initial APIs and, and SDKs and, and open sourced um, our synthetic data platform, talked to a bunch of customers and uh, went out and raised money that we could use to build a core team and, uh, and then build out what we launched um, last August as an open beta for our software. Nice. Is that where you're in right now is open beta? Yeah, we just uh, last week we launched beta two. So essentially what we've done is we've evolved from, we like to call it Lego blocks, but software development kits that you could use to train a synthetic model to generate synthetic data for you to a pure API-based approach, which we just launched um, two weeks ago. And uh, it's as simple as from our con cloud console or from a command line or from an SDK, two lines of code or just an entirely um, console-driven experience. You can take your data set, drag it in, have our machine learning train models in the background for you, 
and give you an artificial data set that you can um, start working with. So really trying to lower the bar and, and make synthetic data available to more people. Why synthetic data? Why can't I just use regular data? It's like our producer said, hey, you need to talk to this guy. He's like bridging the frog data in, in Jurassic Park. I said, I, I'm not quite sure that that's what he's doing, Kate. Great analogy. There's actually, and I think both of these the applications for synthetic data would apply to Jurassic Park pretty well. I, I think the, the first one, it's been proven that even with traditional de-identification, do the best job possible from the best data science team possible to de-identify a data set and then open source it that it can still be linked to, these are called re-identification or linkage attacks. They can still be linked to other data sets that would compromise privacy. So let me give you kind of a classic example of this. Netflix had something called the Netflix Prize Challenge, and this was a competition they hosted a couple years ago. They open sourced 100 million movie reviews from their um, um, internal database. And these were identified, it was just a user ID and a movie number and a rating and a date. So it seems very simple and it seems very, um, you know, uh, anonymized for all of their subscribers. And they had a competition to say, if you can beat our recommendation algorithm based on this data, we'll pay this team a million dollars. So they had a lot of interest and a lot of companies started doing this. Some researchers realized that you could take just that combination of movie ID and user ID and date became identifying enough that you could compare it with IMDb ratings and very quickly uncover users and figure out who these people were and what types of movies they were rating. And it was such a serious thing that required Netflix to pull down the challenge and kind of move away. <laughs> so our approach here with synthetic data is that we will create a completely artificial data set. None of those records get recreated. So they can't get joined with another database that might exist. But the idea is that the data set itself still has the same kind of insights and distributions as the original data. I mean, I think the worry here is that you go to synthetic data, you're going to lose some element of the data and the integrity of the data that makes it less value than the real data itself. Mm -hmm. T tell me how that's not true. The answer there, I, I think you're, you're, that sentiment is definitely right. You're creating an artificial version of a data set. So how can it be smarter than the data set? There's two ways to look at this. One, in many cases, um, if you're just training on that data, it's not. It will have 90 to 95%, as we've been able to test, of the utility of that original data set. The difference is, and this is where we see kind of a um, opportunity cost within businesses, right? The difference is you as a developer might have an idea or data scientists have an idea and you want to build a new feature or you want to test a new idea. What if you could get granted access to the synthetic data set five minutes after you had your idea? versus waiting for weeks to go through compliance um, and get approvals and, and get access requests to data sets. So that's the first one is kind of the, the innovation opportunity cost is a really neat thing. The second, and really this is where you can, and this is kind of getting to your Jurassic Park scenario, like where you can build a better synthetic data set than the original data it was based on, is that you might have enough of the data, but you never have enough of the right data. In the fraud examples, you might have a handful of possible, you know, fraudulent examples, and then millions of non-fraudulent examples. So the question is, if you train an algorithm on that, how do you get it as good as possible detecting fraudulent examples? And the neat thing that we can do with synthetic data is we can say, generate more samples that look like this. So you can build a better data set to train your machine learning. But okay, so I got it. But I guess then the follow-on question is, here's what I hear you say, you never have enough the right data. That's what mm -hmm. I thought I heard you say. So you need to 
in, in some cases, expand the data set so you can, uh, you know, get better answers through machine learning or whatever, but don't you inherently increase the opportunity for bias in doing something like that? That's something, yeah, I view synthetic data as a, as a tool to improve the quality of your data. Looking at biases you might introduce is a, is a really important thing and one we spend a lot of time on. I'll share um, some research we did early and, and really this kind of bias reduction came from early conversations with customers. We were working with University of California, Irvine on um, synthesizing really sensitive healthcare data sets to see if they could make it more accessible inside of their, uh, their business. And one of the challenges they came out with was they were saying, there's a heart disease detection data set that they've actually open sourced. It's available. It's one of the top data sets on these uh, data set competition platform uh, called Kaggle. And yeah. the challenge they had was they had nearly a two to one ratio of males to females in that data set. And when people would train an algorithm on that data set, the algorithm by almost by definition tries to maximize its ability to predict whether you have heart disease or not. And it get, would get really good at detecting male heart disease and it'd be terrible at detecting female heart disease. Right. So the question that they had was saying, can we use your same synthetic library and use it to boost the representation in this case of female records inside of this data set? And if we do that, will it improve our ability to detect heart disease, both for you know female class, but then also across the entire um, data set? So this is one, um, as you're saying, you got to be careful when you do this about what types of new biases you introduce. But the testing we've done and testing we've done since then, um, and we open sourced and, and, and blogged about uh, the approach we took here, was we were able to increase uh, the female heart disease detection by like 6 to 8% across this data set and actually improved the overall detection of the data set by 2 to 3%. So it was an incredible you know, win and a really neat example and one that is early, um, but I think is has a you know a, a really potential to impact anywhere from you know medical disease data sets to voter data to all these areas where you're you're seeking to boost you know an underrepresented or minority class in your data. I'm sure you always have to worry about new biases. Of course, that's the the challenge that we find ourselves in with machine learning and AI. But you're mm -hmm. saying you're actually in this case your heart disease example you're you're countering bias in some case. Mm -hmm. because you're better representing the female community that was two to one in the original data set. Yes. It's a case where there's no substitute for having equal, you know, numbers of patients and patient medical data inside these data sets, but it's either cost prohibitive for you to gather more data, which, um, or just impossible to replicate the same process that was used to gather that data in the first place. So, you know, we've seen across most um, applications of machine learning we talk to, um, whether, you know, I think it's been really popularized in the, you know, kind of face detection space where different skin colors or shades or things like that of, of people's skin um, affect, drastically affect the ability of that facial recognition software to work. It may be impossible to gather, uh, you know, that purely uniform set. So what if you can use a technology like synthetic data to help these algorithms generalize better and perform better across all these different types of classes in the data? You mentioned that this is an open source synthetic data library. Mm -hmm. So where's the sweet spot for Gretel? I mean, where's the business plan? We felt that open source was really important with our customer sets being developers. First, it's important. A lot of developers need to know how things work. We also believe it's too important to get this wrong, right? Creating a black box technique saying, you know, give us your data set and we'll give you something back that's going to correct bias or introduce yeah. privacy, you know, guarantees. 
it's like encryption in that case, right? It's too important to get wrong. So we uh, started off early with an open source approach that allowed us to get a lot of feedback as well as auditing from the community, which I think was really cool. The business model for Gretel is around helping companies do this at scale. So how do you go from a really cool library that you can use to create artificial data sets to operationalizing that inside your environment? Um, as you were saying, so many customers, they want to run on-premises in a hybrid environment. They want to run inside their cloud. So how do we make it simple for them to deploy right. um, and integrate this into, into their data engineering workflow? That's really where our business model is. We launch uh, a set of APIs, very similar to how you would pay for a cloud compute. Our business model is based on charging for the amount of compute that we, we do um, building synthetic data on behalf of the customer. Presume you have tools now that sit on top of the library that are, are they industry-based? Are they uh, use case-based? Yeah, these tools, we've, we've built APIs to simplify certain use cases. Um, I want to build a private version of this data set, so it'll train a synthetic model using differential privacy, or I want to boost this minority class. These tools get deployed, either we'll run them on a customer's behalf inside the Gretel cloud. So you can simply just call um, our SaaS APIs and say, synthesize this data set, or you can deploy inside your own environment. So we're aligning once again with really kind of best of breed technologies. We had a lot of customers that build with Kubernetes and containers, um, and that's how they're doing data engineering. That's how they're enabling, you know, kind of scalable workloads within their environments. So we enable you to deploy our APIs as a container inside your environment, and you can call it just like you would call our cloud service. So when does synthetic data, is it not sufficient? Does it not work? Where you'd say, hey, I wouldn't use it in this case. Data that you need to be able to tie back to an actual human entity. Um, then I think that's really important. So let me give you an example where you are a, um, a team that's investigating fraud across your international business. You need to be able to tie that back to actual accounts so when you're doing that investigation process, it needs to tie to a real person. In that case, um, synthetic data may not be the right answer for you. Um, you may use synthetic data to train your models to detect this, but at the same time, you need to be able to find that actual entry in your database, that actual user um, that might be causing fraudulent activity. So in those cases where you need a link back to a real entity, a real human, anything like that, in that case, you wouldn't want to use synthetic data. Um, so when companies are sharing data outside of their walls, Synthetic data is at a point right now that it's hard to see an example where it wouldn't be better to share the synthetic data example when you don't want things to be tied back to a customer than to share the raw records uh, that have been de-identified because we see all these attacks emerging where these data can be re-identified, which creates a lot of risk for your business. So that small kind of hit you might take on utility, I think um, somewhat, uh, I'll admit, you know, somewhat biased perspective here, but when it comes to protecting your brand and your identity as a business and your, you know, the trust you have with your customers. I think synthetic data is at that point now where you can really start thinking about, should I be sharing raw records to business partners, to third parties, to the different, the, uh, the, the data consumers that I have, um, the partnership agreements with, or should I be sharing synthetic data? I really think we're at a point now you can start looking at synthetic data and start thinking about how you would use that at scale. Is healthcare, is that the industry at the top of the list? Sparked by the pandemic, um, we have seen such a just incredible, um, and I, I think it kind of inspires confidence in humanity, interest in, in sharing these data sets that historically would have been really difficult to share. 
So that's been great. We see a lot in the financial space as well, working with sensitive data, wanting to enable innovation on behalf of customers. A fun sector that I would like to kind of call out here actually is we've had surprisingly uh, really neat use cases emerge out of the gaming industry. The gaming um, industry, you got to tell me more about that. So give me a use case there. As it turns out, games gather tons of information. Um, and particularly if you start looking at like AR and VR or the, the mobile application games that we're playing, um, incredibly personal information and about how you know gamers are, are playing their games. What features do they like? Things like that. The game companies we've talked to, um, I'd say there's there's two core use cases. One, they want to enable innovation behalf, on behalf of their customers, but like in a really privacy preserving and fair way. Um, so how do we learn about the game without learning about the gamer is, is a really big use case. The second one I would say, and I think it's kind of interesting in, in the gaming world, you want to create the most inclusive environment possible. You want to create an environment when you're playing games that encourages anybody from any background to come join. That may not be the way that, that things are today. So the question is, how do we learn from our data in a way that doesn't amplify existing biases in the data, if that makes sense? So how do we create really that that kind of fair world? And one of the uh, the, the gaming um, machine learning leads that we talked to actually you know phrased it really well. He was saying that in the virtual world, if anything, the biases that we feel in the real world are amplified and that would be reflected in our data. So how do we remove that and how do we create like kind of really that the kind of even playing field and that, that kind of fair and inclusive experience. I wanted you to define practical privacy before we finish here. What's practical? How does that differ from impractical privacy? That's one we've been um, thinking about and really working on with our customers. Um, we started out trying to say, how do we crack this nut of giving you guaranteed levels of privacy for your data? And this is an area that has been an active research topic for the past 20 years. If you've heard of differential privacy, that's an example. And I think that's the most kind of like hardy and probably well-studied um, version of privacy where you can give actual mathematical guarantees that an individual user's data won't be replayed or compromised by your data set. The challenge that you see there is while differential privacy is really easy to say, understanding those guarantees is incredibly difficult. You get um, these two values, one's called epsilon, one's called delta, and those you know values are anywhere between zero and a million, and you need to translate that into what are the actual guarantees and privacy I get. And if you're not a data scientist who has a background in privacy, it just doesn't make sense. So our question is saying, how do we take a combination of those theoretical guarantees we can give that give you hard, mathematically backed protections against the types of data attacks we know about? And how do we turn that into something that you can reason about for your own use case? As you introduce more privacy, you're going to have, uh, in many cases, a hit to your accuracy and how do you find that right balance? And how do we describe that in a way that makes sense to a developer, it makes sense to a, a product manager or someone like that's making a decision about how their data is going to be used. Is there such a thing as guaranteed? Differential privacy, and this is a whole podcast on itself, um, <laughs> does offer in certain cases guaranteed um, in, in the terms of resistant to any known or future attacks on data protections uh, against data, but that comes at a real hit to accuracy. So the 30 second, you know, kind of version of differential privacy is that if you have a data set of, let's say 10,000 users, and you have a single user that lives in the state of Washington, right? If you were to do a query across the data set, 
you could compromise that user's identity. Differential privacy works by inserting enough noise into that data set using a, it's called a Laplacian distribution, but insert enough noise into that data set, that user in Seattle, their identity would be protected. That noise comes at a hit to accuracy. So while that is possible in many cases, the compromise you have to make um, requires a really large data set. The areas where I've seen differential privacy actually applied um, working successfully, um, US Census Bureau um, uses that for all the statistics that they release about US Census data. You also see um, Apple and Google using differential privacy for you know, when you're predicting what emoticon, it's suggesting what emoticon for you to use next when you're typing a text message. That is actually based on differential privacy training in the background, um, but it requires tremendously large data sets. So it is possible. How do we make that more accessible and how do we make it more understandable so you can really kind of understand that trade-off is, is a real kind of ongoing research topic and challenge. Please keep us posted on your progress. I know the listeners as well as I would like to see how it goes and where you are, say, for example, in a month's time, two months time, and we'll, we'll post on it. Where can folks reach you and Gretel? So if you just go to the website, gretel.ai, um, uh, you'll see contact information. We have a Slack channel um, that enables any person with any questions to reach out to me directly or to ping any of our developers. And I will also share my Twitter handle with you. That's great. Do that. We'll put it in the show notes. What do you do for fun? I have uh, three daughters. I've enjoyed recently, we've gotten back into rock climbing now that things have started opening back up. So there's some cool gems near our house. That's a ton of fun. Kids are pretty into reading, so we do that as well. Looking forward to, uh, to a little more normalcy um, coming back. How, how old are your daughters, if I could ask? Um, I have twins that are 11 uh, going into middle school next year, and then my youngest is nine. Very nice. Uh, mine are a little bit older than that, but I can tell you, you're a lucky man to have daughters. I have to say that. Uh, I, I won't say this too loud so they don't get a big head, but uh, you're a lucky man to have daughters, I have to say. Good for you, man. <laughs> Pleasure talking with you. Look, I, you know, when you start these podcasts, the, the, it's kind of like, uh, what are we going to talk about today? And then once you get into it, I mean, like, yeah, we didn't even hit the surface of practical privacy. There's so many things we could keep going on. This is fantastic. I learned a lot. I love it. Thanks, Alan. It's, it's really gotten, you know, I think really interesting topic to think about is, is that intersection of privacy and security and how those two fit together. So uh, definitely is. enjoy the conversation as well. Well, great. And I, I'll look forward to following your progress. I want to stay in touch. Uh, thank you so much. Fantastic. Appreciate thank you being you. here. Listeners, as always, I, I want to thank you. And uh, I'll, I'll repeat, as I always do, please reach out to us at almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Like to hear from you. Like to hear of any guests that you have. I mean, that's how we receive our guests, like our good man, Alex here. We find interest from, from the listeners themselves. So please reach out. Please rate us on your, on your favorite location of, of where you hear the podcast. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. I'll see you on the podcast. Later, guys. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out.